Hey guys, just a quick note before the episode kicks off. I just wanted to let you know that on the 16th of June, I am going to be at a podcasting meetup with the True Crime Club in London. London! It's on the 16th at the Silver Cross Pub in Whitehall. It starts at 5pm and there's going to be a number of podcasts there. Murder Mile podcast, Red Handed, Nothing Rhymes with Murder, Killing It podcast, Marissa Monsters is going to be there. A whole bunch of excellent podcasts we're all going to meet up say hello to one another and to listeners. But more importantly, there's going to be a prize draw at that event. So the prize draw is being organized by the lovely ladies over at Nothing Rhymes With Murder, and it is to raise funds for End the Backlog. And I'm going to put in the show notes the links to enter the prize draw and also to donate for the prize draw, trying to make it so that it's nice and legal that we don't fall foul of any gambling laws in any country or state that you might be in. So basically, you just enter the prize draw, do your donation to end the backlog, and you'll be entered into that draw, and you could win all sorts of goodies. There's over 25 true crime podcasts taking part, including myself, but more importantly, the likes of Case File, Generation Y, Insight, True Crime Fan Club, to name just a few. And as I said, all the money going to and the backlog. So check out the links in the show notes. And hopefully I'll see you on the 16th of June. You're listening to the Menzorea podcast. And this is the story of the Dunblane Massacre. in the UK have been shaped in response to tragedies that have affected hundreds of people, families, and communities. In this episode, we take a look at the events leading up to, and those surrounding, the first and final school shooting in the UK, the Dunblane Massacre, and its effects on British society. Though Dunblane was still ten years off, this story has its beginnings a little earlier, in the decade before. At half past twelve on the 19th of August 1987, Susan Godfrey and her children, Hannah Four and James Two, headed to Severnig Forest in Wiltshire for a picnic. They were approached by a man who forced Susan to put the two kids in her Nissan Micra before forcing her into the trees and shooting her in the back thirteen times. The man fled, and eventually the two kids found an older lady and alerted her to what had happened. They told her, quote, A man in black has shot our mummy. Soon after this incident, a man in an Astra arrived at the Golden Arrow petrol station on the A4, and when he was alone, he shot at the female cashier, missing her. A witness called the emergency services to report an attempted armed robbery. Fifteen minutes after the first shooting, homeowners at Southview in the town of Hungerford heard shots. 
Michael Ryan had been trying to load up his Astra with guns, but it wouldn't start. He shot at it in frustration. Then he shot his dogs and set his house alight. He then shot his neighbors, Roland and Sheila Mason, who were in their back garden. Roland was shot six times, Sheila once in the head. Michael Ryan then headed towards Hungerford Town Common. On the way, he shot Marjorie Jackson in the lower back while she was standing in her living room, and 14-year-old Lisa Mildenhall four times in the legs and torso as she stood outside her front door. After, she would say that Ryan had smiled at her before bending down, aiming, and shooting her. Ryan then shot 51-year-old Kenneth Clements, who he met on the path with his family walking their dog. Clements raised his arms in surrender as his family dove over a nearby garden wall. Ryan shot Clemens at point-blank range, killing him. Ryan continued walking and soon after shot 23 rounds at a local police officer, Police Constable Robert Barreton, who had just arrived at the scene in his vehicle after hearing reports of gunfire in the area. He was hit four times in the chest and crashed into a telephone pole, where he died shortly after. Ryan shot into another car coming up the road, hitting Linda Chapman and her teenage daughter, Allison. Both were seriously injured. He then shot at Ivor Jackson and George White, who also drove down the street towards him. White was killed and Jackson was severely injured, but played dead in the hopes that Ryan would move on. And that he did. He shot Abdul Rahman Khan dead and injured his neighbour, Alan Le Petit. He shot at the ambulance that arrived on scene and injured a paramedic. They beat a hasty retreat. Ryan continued shooting into windows until his mother's car pulled into the street, and she saw her burning house and the destruction caused by her son's shooting rampage. Her son then shot her in the legs, the abdomen, and when she fell to the ground, in her back, killing her. Ryan ran now, away from his street, towards the Hungerford Common once again. The police were tracking him by helicopter, and one of the officers, who saw what Ryan was carrying, advised that an armed police unit be called in. On the common, Ryan shot and killed Francis Butler, who was out walking his dog, and shot and injured taxi driver Marcus Barnard, Anne Honeybone, and John Storms. At this point, the police were attempting to evacuate the town centre as Ryan got ever nearer, shooting into cars, killing and injuring more people. Just after half one, an hour after Ryan started shooting, he barged his way in and killed the residents of a house in Priory Road. While in the house, he also shot at the neighbours, injuring them. He then continued down the road, again shooting into cars and fatally injuring Ian Pale, who was driving home from the shops with his wife and children. Eventually, Ryan broke into Jonagant Community Technology College, where he had once attended, and barricaded himself into a classroom. Police surrounded the building. Ryan continued shooting, even at the helicopters, which had now been joined by media choppers too and negotiations to try and coax the shooter out began. 
He told the police that he had made a mistake killing his mother, and he wouldn't come out because of what he had done to her. Finally, at 6.52 that evening, Ryan shot himself in the head, and the ordeal ended. At the time of the massacre, Michael Ryan had been in possession of a number of legally held guns. They included a Zabila shotgun, a Browning shotgun, a Breda 92FS semi-automatic 9mm pistol, a CZ Orzo semi-automatic 32 caliber pistol, a Bernardelli 22 caliber pistol, a Type 56 7.62 by 39mm semi-automatic rifle, and an M1 carbine 30mm semi-automatic rifle. He used the Beretta, the Type 56, and the M1 rifles in the massacre. There were unconfirmed reports that at one point he also threw a grenade at the police who were attempting to negotiate with him. The Hungerford report was commissioned after the incident by the Home Secretary. The Firearms Amendment Act 1988 was passed in the wake of the massacre, which banned the ownership of semi-automatic centerfire rifles and restricted the use of shotguns with a capacity of more than three cartridges. Thomas Hamilton was born on the 10th of May, 1952, to Agnes Hamilton and Thomas Watt. Agnes had been widowed, and Thomas was an illegitimate child of her relationship with Watt. His father left Agnes shortly after Thomas was born, and Agnes returned to the home of her adoptive parents, who later adopted Thomas himself. He grew up referring to his grandparents as his mother and father, and thinking that his mother was in fact his older sister of 19 years. He lived in Stirling, and after his adoptive mother died in 1987, he continued living with his adoptive father, until he left to live in a sheltered house citing abusive behaviour on his son's part. When Thomas finished school, he became an apprentice draftsman. In 1972, he opened his own shop, Woodcraft, specialising eventually in fitted kitchens. By 1993, he had given up the shop, however, and registered as unemployed, though he had focused in on his hobby of buying and selling photography equipment and freelance photography. In 1973, Thomas Hamilton became assistant scout leader of the 4th and 6th Sterling Scouting Troop. He was eager and seemed willing to volunteer for nearly anything. He once volunteered to take boys out on Loch Lomond so that they could get a badge, but he wasn't allowed to because the equipment he had was deemed inadequate and he wasn't thought to be proficient enough when it came to boating. By autumn of 1973, he was moved over to the 24th Stirlingshire Troop out of Bannockburn. But soon there were worries about his ability to lead a troop effectively. The first incident was that he had arranged for a group of boys to go spend the night away and he failed to organise accommodation for the boys. They ended up sleeping in the back of a cold van. He said that the accommodation that he had organised was double-booked and the troop leadership moved on, admonishing him to make sure to double-check these things in future. The second time it happened, the leadership found out that he had never actually booked accommodation for either of these trips out. It was decided that Thomas Hamilton should be asked to resign for incompetence. 
When he was being asked to leave, those who spoke to him got the impression that he was a bit unstable and had a persecution complex. The letter that was sent to the scouting headquarters read, quote, While unable to give concrete evidence against this man, I feel that too many incidents relate to him such that I am far from happy about his having any association with the scouts. He has displayed irresponsible acts on outdoor activities by taking young, quote, favourite scouts for weekends during the winter and sleeping in his van, the excuse for these outings being hill-walking expeditions. The lack of precautions for such outdoor activities displays either irresponsibility or an ulterior motive for sleeping with the boys. His personality displays evidence of a persecution complex coupled with rather grandiose delusions of his own abilities. As a doctor, and with my clinical acumen only, I am suspicious of his moral intentions towards boys. End quote. Thomas Hamilton would never be allowed to hold a leadership position in the Scouts again, anywhere in the UK. Hamilton wrote letters of complaint saying that the Scouts were attempting to ruin his reputation. But Hamilton would not be put off by this rejection, though he would certainly not let it go, and he decided to set out on his own and set up his own boys' clubs. He sent around leaflets to the areas he decided to set the clubs up in to grow membership and ran the clubs out of the local schools and halls. He offered games, mainly football, and a bit of gymnastics for boys aged 7 to 11. Hamilton actually held a grade 5 certificate from the British Amateur Gymnastics Association, and so, at least on paper, he was qualified to coach the sport although according to their standards, he would have had to be supervised by another coach with a higher cert, but this was rarely the case. Hamilton ran the clubs nearly entirely on his own. He would refer at time to the, quote, Boys Club Sports Group Committee, implying that there was some sort of board behind the organisations, but this was not the case. Hamilton was a one-man show. He inflated his qualifications lied about how much adult supervision boys in the clubs and camps would have, and let people think that, due to his leases, he was associated with the schools somehow, and that they had given him an endorsement. This, again, was not the case. The stated objective of these boys' clubs was to keep kids off the street, and he charged a small sum for each of the boys attending. In the beginning, the clubs proved very popular, but as time went on, attendance waned. Hamilton said it was because the boys lacked dedication and discipline, but it's more likely that it was due to Hamilton's own behaviour and the growing suspicion of the parents of the boys involved. As suspicion grew, he found it increasingly difficult to recruit boys and to find somewhere to host the clubs. He was a prolific letter writer and by no means flew below the radar. He was always in touch with his local politicians and councils in order that he be able to rent council spaces to hold his clubs. He voiced complaints against those he felt had slighted him by refusing to let to him or raising concerns about his activities. In some cases, parents who withdrew their children from the clubs would be on the receiving end of abuse from him. He continued to run these boys' clubs, and many parents thought that he was somehow affiliated with the Scouts, but of course that wasn't the case. They would have nothing to do with him. 
Some parents worried that the camps were too militaristic, and one even described it as what he thought the Hitler Youth may have looked like, over-disciplined and harsh. Hamilton appeared to thrive on controlling the boys in his care, and often made them endure tough conditions like wet clothing, inadequate food, or shelter. Of course, there were a lot of parents who thought that all of this was fine. He was keeping the kids off the streets. But a lot of people thought it was weird, and so was Hamilton. He seemed to have favourites among the boys. He would collect them from their homes and became nosy about their family lives. Parents also worried about Hamilton's insistence on a quote-unquote uniform for the boys when they were doing their gymnastic exercises. They were ill-fitting black swimming trunks. He said that the boys often wore unsuitable clothing and that therefore the trunks were necessary. Parents were also uncomfortable when they realised that there were no changing facilities provided by Hamilton's clubs either. Hamilton was also in the habit of taking photographs of the boys while they were doing their exercises, without their parents' knowledge or consent, and many of these he had hanging on the wall of his home. The pictures were visible to those outside through the window. It was strange, to say the least. There were no substantiated claims, but it seems as if Hamilton did prefer the company of young males, and it's not hard to see why people think that he may have been a paedophile. Though, as I said, he was never charged with anything, and no one has ever come forward with such claims. But that said, many people never speak of abuse that they endure as children, so who's to know, really? In July 1988, Hamilton held a camp for boys on one of the islands in Loch Lomond, and the police got complaints about conditions there. When they went to investigate, they found that the campsite was a mess. There were 13 boys there, and they found that they had not been allowed to wear trousers. They were cold, and some reported having been slapped. When the boys were questioned, very little of what they reported was consistent and could not be corroborated. The incidents that could be corroborated were very minor, so no charges were brought against Hamilton, and in fact he filed a formal complaint against the police who had paid him a visit. Hamilton even had suspicion that the officer in question was a scout leader and was partaking in some sort of conspiracy against him. In later complaints, he would accuse police of being members of the Masons, who apparently were also conspiring against him. In May of 1989, Hamilton was assaulted by a parent of one of the boys who had been on his camps. She and another mother tried to work with Hamilton to improve things, but they both eventually gave up when they realised that they were not welcome. Hamilton and other men camping with him had become threatening towards them. So the woman set upon him when he was leaving Linlithgow Academy that he had rented out for a boys' club, and she made sure that there was a local news reporter present. She wanted charges to be brought against her so that there would be some sort of proper investigation into Hamilton's activities. Her son had told the police that Hamilton had had him and the other boys apply suntan lotion to him all over his body, but Hamilton didn't make a complaint against her for the assault. 
The camp at the island at Inchmoan that the woman complained about ended up being suspended by the council, and then Hamilton began a letter-writing campaign to the ombudsman about them. However, the council's decision stood. Hamilton was first granted a firearms licence in 1977. In the 70s and 80s, he would take boys to Dumblain Rifle and Pistol Club to teach them to use air rifles and air pistols, which he was, at the time, a member of. He was a member of a number of gun clubs in the Stirling area. He liked to show off his ever-increasing stock of firearms, and even brought the weapons into other people's homes including the homes of some of the members of his boys' clubs. The parents said that they were uneasy about the whole situation, and the matter was investigated by the Lothian police. A chief superintendent stated in a memo about the incident, quote, It may be quite harmless display of weapons, but nevertheless an action which leaves a lot to be desired, end quote. At another point, Hamilton pointed a gun at Doreen Hager, the woman who had tried to assault Hamilton in front of a reporter, after she had made a complaint about Hamilton to the Linlithgow police. She was on the school run, and after she picked her daughter up from the bus stop, she reported Hamilton slamming on the brakes of his van next to the path where they were standing. He accused her of gossiping and making complaints about him, and he put the barrel of his gun up against the window, pointing it at her. She had told him to stop pointing that gun at her, or she'd ram it down his fucking throat. He drove off at that. She decided to inform the police, although she didn't feel threatened by him. She said he thought he was a complete idiot. This story was, however, not substantiated by the other women present with Miss Hager at the time, and was not something that she brought up when Mrs. Hager later set upon Hamilton in an attempt to have his actions further investigated. No action was taken, and Hamilton's firearms licenses were renewed within six months of this undesirable showcasing of guns. There were more complaints about the Loch Lomond camp received by the police in 1991, specifically relating to assaults and pictures and videos of the boys. Hamilton initially denied that he had any inappropriate photographs, specifically ones where the boys were wearing only swimming trunks, but eventually handed over some pictures. Again, it was deemed that there was insufficient evidence to bring charges against Hamilton. The report of that investigation, the Hughes report, has been put under a hundred-year seal, so we will never know the extent of that inquiry. 1992 saw Hamilton continue his letter-writing campaign, accusing people of sullying his character and his making complaints against the police. He continued to find himself under scrutiny due to his clubs. In the summer of that year, three boys were found wandering the streets of Dunblane in their pyjamas. Concerns about supervision in the clubs seemed to be founded. A report was prepared by the Child Protection Unit, and a member of the Fife Regional Council would go on to state, quote, I feel that the events of 29th of June 1992 in Dunblane, in a sense, serve as a warning. I fear that a tragedy to a child or children is almost waiting to happen. End quote. By 1995, Thomas Hamilton was amassing more and more firearms, and more and more ammunition 
At the same time, his boys' club membership began to dwindle. He blamed staff at the local primary school in Dumblane and scout leaders and said as much in a letter to the local town councillor, as well as his local member of parliament or MP. He even wrote a letter of complaint to the Queen herself, as the patron of the Scouts Association, telling her of his ill-treatment at the hands of the local troops and leaders. He even sent out leaflets to homes in Dumblane, explaining that he had left the Scouts himself and that people were spreading vile and false rumours about him. He applied to the Education Committee of the Central Regional Council for official recognition as an approved youth club. In order to do this, he needed references, which were given grudgingly, and he needed to show that there would be a board. He said that his committee would be made of 12 adults, and his mother was to be his treasurer. He would also have an assistant. This recognition meant that he was able to move further afield and to secure a lease with Thomas More High School in Bishop Briggs, about 30 miles from Dumblane. Though Hamilton owned a number of guns, there was no record of his having bought ammunition between October 1987 and the 22nd of September 1995. After that, between September and February 1996, he bought over 1,700 rounds, and also added two guns to his collection, bringing his total of legal firearms up to six. He became a much more active shooter, and was noted as a reasonably good shot by the gun clubs he was a member of. He did have a habit of firing very rapidly, and firing more rounds than might be required by the given target practice, which was quite unusual. He was reprimanded on one occasion and told that it was entirely out of order. In February of 1996, a friend of Hamilton's arrived at his house. He was a reasonably frequent visitor, although Hamilton had very few real friends and had more acquaintances than true friends. Hamilton was holding one of his pistols when he asked his friend, Mr. Gillespie, if he had had children, would he let them go to Hamilton's clubs? Gillespie said that he wouldn't, that Hamilton was too militaristic. At this, Hamilton pointed the gun at him and pulled the trigger. The gun wasn't loaded, so thankfully no one was hurt, but Gillespie left the house immediately and never went to see his friend again. By this point, Hamilton had also basically given up his other hobby of photography and was selling off his gear. He was accumulating debts. He had sold his kitchen fitting business in the mid-80s and he had been registered as unemployed but had made some money buying and selling his camera stuff. That trade had eventually disqualified him from those benefits. So welfare was gone, and his photography hobby declined as he got more and more into guns. He had always run the boys' clubs at a loss. He was living on credit. He had warrants out for his non-payment of council tax, and time was running out on what was allowed to pay his bill. It would come due on the 13th of March, 1996. By March of 1996, some of the people who regularly interacted with Hamilton noticed that he had become subdued and depressed in the previous few months. On March 7th, Hamilton visited Dumblane Primary School and ran into a nine-year-old boy who happened to go to one of his boys' clubs. 
He asked the boy how to get to the gym and peppered him with questions about when the gym was used for assembly. When did the smaller kids have assembly? And when did they play there, he asked. He was told that assembly was Wednesday morning at half nine. He also asked how many fire exits there were. But this wasn't the first time that Hamilton had asked the boy these questions. He had asked repeatedly, the boy said, over the previous two years about the assembly times and the location and setup of the school gymnasium. In or around the same day, a retired police officer had a conversation with Hamilton about practicing shooting from 10 metres. Hamilton then went on to rant about how he thought there should be a firearms response unit to deal with crimes such as the Hungerford Massacre. The retired policeman had told him that there were no weapons kept on the premises of the police station when he worked there. Hamilton seemed to be very informed about what police procedure was, and the man at the time didn't think that Hamilton was trying to get information out of him. The morning of Wednesday the 13th of March 1996 was like any other for the pupils of Dunblane Primary School. It was cold and cloudy, and the kids trickled into the school building for morning kids' clubs before the younger kids in primary one to three met in the school hall at around 9am for assembly. There were 640 kids in the whole school, so assembly had to be taken in turns. It finished at half nine, and after that the kids went to their classrooms, and Miss Mayer's class of 25, five and six-year-olds headed to the gym for P.E., They were joined by the PE teacher, Mrs. Harold, and Ms. Blake, a supervisory assistant, who was going to relieve Miss Mayer so she could go to a meeting. Thomas Hamilton arrived at the school at half nine and parked his white van on the grounds. He got out of the van and used pliers to cut telephone wires, knocking out service for nearby homes rather than his intended target, the school. Then he got up and walked into the school by a side door. If he had gone in the main door, he most certainly would have drawn attention to himself. But his chosen route meant that no one batted an eye until he arrived in the gym and pulled out his guns. He had marked the magazines to ensure that he loaded them correctly, and it looked as if he had taken care to avoid the guns jamming. He had canvas bags over either shoulder, which he had packed with ammunition. He tied them open to ensure that he had easy access to them throughout, and had lined them with cardboard to keep them from collapsing. He had four handguns with him, two Browning 9mm and two Smith & Wesson revolvers. He started shooting at the 25 kids and three teachers that he found there. He fired indiscriminately, and Mrs. Harold was hit four times in both arms, her right hand and to the left of her chest. She managed to stumble into a storeroom with a number of children following her. Ms. Mare was also shot a number of times, and she died instantly. Miss Blake was also shot and followed Miss Harold into the storeroom. 103 shots were fired in the area of the gym, Hamilton took other shots at an older school kid who was walking outside. Thankfully, he didn't hit the boy, but the boy was injured by flying glass. At one point, Hamilton left the gym through a back exit and fired off shots at a group of other school children. 
Their teacher, Grace Tweddle, was shot and wounded, but he thankfully didn't hit any of those kids. He fired into a classroom, again missing the kids, whose teacher had seen what was happening and ordered her children to lie on the ground. Then Hamilton went back into the gym where he fired more shots at the children who lay injured on the floor there. Then Hamilton shot himself. The principal, Ron Taylor, called for emergency services at 9.41am. He had heard the banging noise and thought that there were builders on site that he hadn't been informed of, until one of his assistant head teachers had rushed into his office explaining what was wrong. By that time, 14 kids and one teacher lay dead in the gymnasium, with another child mortally wounded. Another two adults were injured and hiding in the storeroom off the main gym, along with the other children who had taken shelter with them. Only two of the 26 children present for class that morning had escaped with no gunshot wounds. The injuries spanned everywhere from very serious to more minor injuries. Staff entered the gym to try and help before the police and ambulance services arrived. When the principal, Mr. Taylor, arrived at the scene, he said he was met by, quote, a scene of unimaginable carnage, one's worst nightmare, end quote. The kids that were injured but mobile were ushered out of the gym. The caretaker, John Curry, kicked away the guns that lay next to Thomas Hamilton's body. Police arrived on scene at 9.50 and the first ambulance followed seven minutes later. They were met by complete carnage at the scene. The 17 deceased victims had suffered a total of 58 gunshot wounds between them. The injured children and teachers were brought to Stirling Royal Infirmary, and all of them had been removed from the scene by ten past eleven. No note of their names had been taken as they were sent off to hospital. Meanwhile, news was leaking out that something had happened at the primary school, and parents began flocking back to the building to see what the matter was. There was a cordon set up outside the school, and parents gathered wondering what had happened. As the parents gathered, so did the media. Eventually, parents were brought into a neighbouring house, and as the day went on and it became apparent only one class was involved, the parents of the children in that class were moved to the teacher's room. And they waited, and waited, and waited. As news broke outside the school that there had been a lone shooter who massacred little children and their teacher, the parents of those kids were stuck in a small room in the school itself with no information and only a thread of hope that their kids were okay. No one gave them any information, not until half three that day, hours and hours after their kids had been shot. Meanwhile, news was leaking out that something awful had happened. Someone from a local newspaper had heard the police calling for ambulance services on the police radio scanner, and the nearby court had been suspended as police officers were no longer available to give evidence. The first news story appeared at 10.40am, and the press began to converge on the town of Dunblane. By one o'clock, someone from the police had spoken to the press. It was reported that two adults and 13 children were dead, one of the adults being a teacher. Superintendent Louis Munn, who had worked on the Lockerbie bombing, was called in to deal with the press. He made an official statement at 1.45 that afternoon 
about the number of deaths involved. People now knew as many as 16 children had been killed in the school gymnasium. When the police searched Hamilton's home at 7 Kent Road, they found 715 rounds of 9mm and 280 rounds of .357 ammunition, along with 11 rounds for a 38 Special. He had taken the photographs of the boys down from his walls, but they did find 445 slides, 542 photographs, and 4,260 negatives during the search. The majority of these photos were of the boys' club participants. There were also 37 videotapes. In the days following the shooting, politicians gathered and expressed sympathy to those who had been impacted by the events in Dunblane, and information about the perpetrator, Thomas Hamilton, began to surface. Quickly, the conversation turned from what everyone could agree was a disturbed and strange individual who had carried out this attack on small children to what had allowed this to happen. Britain's gun laws. Dunblame became a political football. Some cautioned against knee-jerk reactions, while others called for a complete reform of gun control laws. A minute's silence was observed throughout Great Britain on Sunday the 28th of March at half past nine. The announcement of the inquiry into the events at Dunblane came later that day. There was much political wrangling over whether the issue of gun control would be addressed. Some chastised those looking to have the issue looked at as using the atrocity for political gain. Now is not the time, they were told. Others were insistent that this was precisely the time to talk about it, to act, to make sure something like this never happened again. When the Prime Minister visited, one of the parents, Isabel McBeath, spoke to him privately about how she felt the families of the deceased children had been treated by the police. They had put procedure first, and she felt that the treatment of the families was therefore less than appropriate for those who were themselves victims. Later that day, Mrs. McBeath got a visit from a local higher-up police officer, DCS Hoggs, saying that she didn't understand the police procedures and that they had done everything right. The gym was to be demolished as soon as possible. The community arranged church services and vigils and pulled together, but of course, the parents of the children who had died were in shock. Those around them were trying to start a healing process for the whole town to help them get over the trauma of it all, but the parents' trauma would never be eased. They went about organising the funerals for their little kids. In a particularly tone-deaf moment, the Queen opened the Royal Armouries Museum in Leeds and expressed her grief on behalf of the families affected by Dunblane, and then went on to say, quote, the weapons of war, which can be as beautiful as they are terrible, are often products of the very finest design and craftsmanship. One particular parent, that of Sophie North, was outraged by the comments and sent a message to the Queen to that effect. When she was to make a visit to Dunblane, he composed a statement to give to the press. The police warned that it was too political to be released, as it pled with the British people to do away with guns. Mr. North went ahead and released it the next day anyway. That was the 21st of March, and the Home Secretary at the time, Michael Howard, announced a gun amnesty. 
As the week went on and the funerals continued, there was also a steady stream of those who were injured in the attack, who had physically recovered and were well enough to leave the hospital. The primary school would not be fully reopened until after the Easter holidays that year. A support centre was set up in order to provide counselling and to help the wider community, and also acted as a go-between between the families and the town in order to make sure that the information got out to those who needed it. Some of the victims' families became involved in petitions for gun control reform, and those petitions were delivered to the government in London. An inquiry was announced. Things moved quickly with the inquiry. It would start preliminary hearings on the 1st of May in the Albert Hall in Stirling, The parents of the victims and injured had begun holding meetings in Dunblane by the beginning of April, not only to find comfort with one another in a group that understood what they were all going through, but also in order to make sure that everyone was informed of what was going on and to discuss how they would be represented at the inquiry. They decided collectively that it would be best if all the victims and their families were represented by one lawyer and so they picked their representative and began preparing for the arrival of Lord Cullen. They had decided upon Peter Watson, who had also represented victims of Lockerbie. He would cross-examine witnesses on their behalf during the inquiry and would be focusing on the victim's primary concern, gun control. A week before the proceedings proper got underway, Lord Cullen held a meeting with the representatives of the victims and they were assured that every effort would be made to prevent sensitive material about the victims from becoming public. They were told that there would be an inevitable focus on Thomas Hamilton, and due to the concerns over privacy, it may seem as if the victims were forgotten, but they were assured that though there would be less public attention, those who had been affected directly by the murders would be at the forefront of the inquiry at all times, even if it was without media attention and quietly. The concern was to maintain respect and dignity for the victims of the attack. The hearings began on Wednesday the 29th of May, but the families had been provided with piles of paper containing witness statements and submissions from interested parties about the events leading up to the massacre. When the inquiry opened, Lord Cullen began by reading out a list of names of the dead. One of the teachers present who had survived the shooting took to the witness stand and described how Hamilton had entered the gym with his gun aimed and how he had shot all the adults first. The first day of the inquiry saw evidence briefly given by pathologists about the injuries sustained by the victims of Hamilton, both those who had survived and those he had murdered in cold blood. Next came the forensics and ballistic evidence. What guns Hamilton had used and where his bullets had come from were discussed as well as the damage that can be done by the soft-nosed bullets that were available to those who shot in ranges for fun. The police gave evidence of the scene that morning, and DCS Hogg took to the stand and told the inquiry about how the families had been dealt with. He said that they had been informed a few hours earlier than they actually had, and although the families were not visible to the public and the press, as they were sitting in the gallery above, There was an audible groan when he insisted that his timeline was correct and that the families of the dead children had been informed much earlier than they reported. 
He said he did not know that there had been any complaints about when and how the police had informed the families until a few days before the inquiry itself began. That begs the question, why did he go visit Mrs. McBeath? The head teacher of the school gave evidence, followed by his assistant, and then Thomas Hamilton's mother, who spoke about his early life. She described his family, and that he had been adopted by her parents after she had been left by his father. They also heard evidence about how and where Thomas Hamilton had bought his guns and ammunition. All done legally, and by the book. They heard from people at the shooting ranges who described Hamilton's abilities with guns and their impressions of his character, as well as defending their hobby of shooting for sport. The next week, further evidence was given regarding the time that the police had informed the families by one of the social workers who was assigned to the last family to be informed of their child's death. She insisted that the time she gave about when the parents were informed was correct, and it was the police who were mistaken. On the sixth day of the inquiry, Doreen Hager gave evidence regarding her concerns over Hamilton's involvement in the boys' camps and told about how he had once threatened her with a gun after she threw slime over him, trying to draw attention of the local council to the problems with the camps run by Hamilton. But the police disputed that such an incident had occurred. If it had been reported to them, they said, Hamilton's license would have been revoked immediately. The details of all of Hamilton's guns and their licenses were heard. Every police officer that had been involved in signing off on the paperwork told their part of the story, which culminated in the man ultimately responsible for signing the firearm certificates, DCC Douglas McMurdo. It was with him that the ultimate responsibility lay for granting Hamilton the ability to own the guns that he had. On the stand, he seemed to think Hamilton's real troubles, the boys' clubs, his relationship with the council, etc., had nothing whatever to do with his ownership of guns. He dismissed a memo prepared by a junior police officer, recommending that the firearms certificates be revoked. He had done everything according to the procedures and guidelines in place at the time. McMurdo was the only police officer to resign in the wake of the Dunblane Massacre, despite the family's dissatisfaction with the police actions in relation to informing the relatives of the deceased, the dealings with the media, and their subsequent interactions with those in charge of the investigation. Psychological and psychiatric experts also gave opinions, based on what they had read and heard of Thomas Hamilton in relation to his mental state. They concluded that he was not mentally ill, but probably had a personality disorder, such as paranoid personality or psychopathic personality disorders. Though, of course, this is with hindsight into what had happened and based on the reports of his behaviour after the fact. He appeared to them to be controlling, had low frustration levels, and clung to setbacks in his life, which he blamed other people for. The psychiatrists that gave evidence and the reports to the inquest concluded that Due to the nature of the videos and photographs that Hamilton had taken, he was most certainly a paedophile, though he may never have acted directly on any of these urges, and instead may have satisfied himself by dominating the boys in his charge and by viewing the photos and videos he had taken. While the Cullen inquiry was ongoing, the Home Affairs Committee went about preparing their fifth report on the issue of gun control. The committee itself was made up of 11 MPs, 6 Tories and 5 Labour. 
They heard evidence from the police and from four members of the gun lobby appearing under the umbrella of the lobby group the British Shooting Sports Council. Much of the evidence was given by gun enthusiasts and was met with little to no critical analysis of the information presented. Unsurprisingly, the findings of the report recommended no change to the handgun ownership laws and in fact recommended a loosening of the regulations. Nonetheless, the minority Labour backbenchers would not agree to back the report, and in an unusual move, the report was not unanimously agreed. Rather, they voted against this report, and in favour of one prepared by their own Labour Party members, Chris Mullen, which recommended a ban on handguns and tighter regulations on rifles and other types of guns. The report of the Cullen Inquiry was released to the public on the 16th of October 1996. The results of the inquiry were 28 recommendations dealing not only with the issue of gun ownership certification and availability, but also with vetting adults working with children and school security. The government of the day accepted all of the recommendations, except the one that related specifically to the availability of Section 1 firearms, handguns and self-loading pistols. The report had recommended the restriction of these weapons of any calibre by disablement, or failing that, by banning individual ownership. The government instead decided to ban high-calibre handguns. Anything over a twenty-two would now be illegal. Though what made high-calibre handguns more dangerous than smaller ones remained a mystery to those campaigning for gun control. In addition, these guns would now have to be kept at gun clubs under strict conditions. They were no longer allowed in the home. Those campaigning for gun control were disappointed. They thought neither the Cullen Report nor the government's response to it went far enough to prevent an event such as Dunblane or Hungerford from happening again. Those who made up the gun lobby were also unhappy with the new restrictions placed on them. It was their argument that gun crime happens with illegally held firearms. The people who legally own guns are the good guys. The bill outlawing the specified handguns was passed by John Major's government later that year, but the campaigning for a full ban on handguns continued as a general election was due. The gun lobby ran their own candidates against the Labour Party and Dunblane, who were party-wide in support of a full ban on handguns. The Conservatives lost power and Labour took the government that May, and soon after, the bill to ban handguns was passed and became law. The anti-gun campaign had won, and the recreational use of handguns was no more in Britain. The 1997 Firearms Amendment Acts banned what were called short firearms, with the exception of muzzle-loading guns, pistols of historic interest, guns used for sporting events, signal pistols, and shot pistols used for pest control. Also excluded were pistols of aesthetic interest, that is, pretty guns. Those who shot twenty-twos for sports, including the Olympics, could now only train in Northern Ireland, the Channel Islands, the Isle of Man, or elsewhere outside of the UK. There was a rowback on this in the run-up to the 2012 Olympics, though, and elite quote-unquote athletes could now get a special licence that allowed them to keep and train with pistols otherwise outlawed at specific ranges. So, that's the end of it, right? 
Handguns are outlawed, and guns can only be held by those who have an actual reason for it. And so, therefore, firearms that are used in homicides are, for the most part, held only by criminals, gangs and drug dealers. Right? Wrong. On the 2nd of June, 2010, 52-year-old Derek Bird drove his car to his twin brother David's house in Lamplu and shot him 11 times in the back, killing him. He then drove to his family's solicitor and shot him in his home. By 10.30 that morning, he drove to a taxi rank and shot another man that he had had a personal grievance with over their taxi businesses. He then shot at a few more men in and around the rank. He drove off through a number of neighbouring towns and just fired at random, injuring and killing others. He continued driving and shooting until he came to a stop at a local beauty spot called the Doctor's Bridge near the town of Boots, as his tyre had gone flat. He walked into the woods and shot himself. It was 12.36 when the police found him dead of self-inflicted gunshot wounds. Twelve people were killed that day and a further eleven were injured in this rampage. Bird had used a double-barreled shotgun and a twenty-two caliber rifle, both of which he had a license for. Firearms offences in the UK have risen in the past few years, mainly involving offences with handguns and imitation weapons. That said, these offences are still 31% below that of ten years ago. Overall, though, crimes resulting in gun death in the UK is at 0.06 per 100,000 of population. In 2016, there were 26 gun-related deaths in England and Wales. Compare that to the US, where crimes involving guns that result in death stands at 4.62 per 100,000. That's in and around 11,000 gun-related homicides in the same year. Interesting, right? Thank you for listening to the Mens Rea podcast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help others to find us, and I do love to hear what you think. You can also find us on Twitter and on Facebook at Mens Rea Pod, and check out our discussion group on Facebook too for links to articles and pictures from the cases that we cover. I'd like to take a moment to thank our supporters on Patreon. Thank you to Catherine Besler, who's upped her pledge from 10 bucks a month to 30 You can look forward to an episode produced by Catherine in the future. Your support means a lot, and it helps to cover some of the cost of the production of the show. There are now some nice new little perks, including bonus content available. There's stuff for everybody, and any small contribution helps. Check it out. And now to thank our five-star reviewers on Facebook this week rather than Apple Podcasts. Thank you to Jennifer Roy, who gave us five stars in January. Obviously listened to our Carrie Babies episode. And yep, things have been and continue to be in some cases quite bad for women in Ireland. And next to Melissa Fogel, who was one of our lovely patrons. Thank you very much for your five stars there, Melissa. Thank you to Sean Boyle, Des O'Connor, and, ugh, I'm going to butcher this, I'm really sorry, Jen Yucky. Sorry, I might have Sinead as my name, but my Irish is really, really bad, but thanks for your five stars there, Jen. Charlotte Dagg, 
and also Marina Hogan McGuire, another one of our lovely patrons. So thanks so much for your reviews, guys. I do read them, as I always say, and I really enjoy getting your feedback. So if you do have the time, pop in a review there. Our theme song is Quinn's Song, First Dance by Kevin MacLeod, with thanks to Ronan McHugh for help with sound engineering. This week we looked at how atrocities have shaped gun laws in the UK, but next time we'll be looking at the development of the law relating to a human rights issue and one of the crimes that spurred it on at home here in Ireland. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Little, 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 little